from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read together Lord's Day 40. What does God require in the sixth commandment? I'm not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I'm to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I'm not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. For this is commandment speak only of killing. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to show love, to, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sixth commandment, the Lord teaches us, you shall not murder The Bible makes it clear that God has concern for our life. God created man in his image. Despite the fall into sin, we are God's representatives on this earth. And so God has put a very high value on man's life. From earliest times, God taught man, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is much to say for us as Christians living in the 21st century. We're living in a culture of violence and death. Through this commandment, the Lord teaches us to cherish life. It's a timely message with special application to the weakest members of our society, the unborn, the weak, those with disabilities, the elderly. When the Lord Jesus Christ lived on this earth, he showed us a deeper meaning of the sixth commandment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that whoever is angry with his brother is in danger of judgment, and whoever says you fool is in danger of hellfire. Jesus made it clear that the root of murder often lies in our hearts, in envy, hatred, anger, and a desire for revenge. And so the Sixth Commandment also has a clear spiritual application. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. This afternoon we're going to focus on Jesus' teaching that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We do so because this has the most relevance for our daily lives. We know it's wrong to murder or to have an abortion or to aid someone who wants to take their own life. Yet what we so easily forget is that 
the root of murder often lies within us, that we fall far short of honoring Christ's teachings in that regard. We receive comfort from the fact that Jesus Christ has fulfilled this commandment for us, that we share in his righteousness and holiness. It's this comfort that encourages us to live thankful lives before God by living in communion with our neighbor. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. In forbidding murder, Christ calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll see what Christ requires of us in the Sixth Commandment, how Christ came to fulfill the Sixth Commandment, and that Christ calls us to keep this commandment. God forbids murder. Now, there's a difference between killing and murder. Murder is the premeditated taking of the life of another. So when you take a weapon in your hand with the intent of killing your neighbor, and then do so, Cain murdered his brother Abel. King Ahab murdered Nabal for his vineyard, even though he hired others to do his dirty work for him. The Jewish leaders murdered Stephen because of the testimony he gave about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. There's also a difference between murder and manslaughter. Manslaughter is the accidental killing of your neighbor. The Bible gives the example of a man swinging an axe and the head coming off and striking his neighbor and killing him. Today, sometimes people are found guilty of manslaughter when they accidentally kill someone in a car accident. In such cases, the intent was not there to kill another. His or her death happened accidentally. Not even all forms of killing with intent are murder. For example, a country may authorize its soldiers to fight in its defense. When a soldier goes into battle and kills someone in it, he is not guilty of murder. He was serving honorably in the task given him. Similarly, a government may impose capital punishment on those guilty of murder or other serious crimes. The government has been given the sword to bring judgment on those who practice evil. This, too, is not murder. When the Lord Jesus began his public ministry, the Jewish leaders had this kind of understanding of murder. They applied the Sixth Commandment to the physical side of life in their society. Their explanation of this aspect of the Sixth Commandment was correct. We agree that physically we are to maintain and uphold human life as a gift from God. We recognize God has numbered our days. He is the one who is both the giver and the taker of life. We, too, oppose murder, the premeditated taking of the life of another. It's because of what God teaches us in the Sixth Commandment that we oppose abortion and euthanasia. We believe that human beings are created in the image of God and that as such life is to be cherished. 
the Lord Jesus deepened the teaching of the Sixth Commandment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He said, You have heard that it was said of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. Jesus does not disagree with this, but he adds to it. He shows how the Sixth Commandment applies not just physically, but also spiritually. Jesus adds, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. These words make it clear that Jesus does not just oppose murder. He also opposes the root of murder. Where does murder come from? Why would someone deliberately go out and take the life of his or her neighbor? It's because of what lives in that person's heart. It's because he is jealous that his neighbor has something that he does not have. It's because he hates his neighbor or is angry with him because of some alleged wrongdoing. Because he wants to get even with his neighbor, he's consumed with a desire for revenge. Envy, hatred, anger, and a desire of revenge are the root of murder. The Lord Jesus opposes these things. Jesus shows how the Sixth Commandment involves all that goes on in our hearts. And here, beloved, is where we are challenged. Just think about what happens within you when you're faced with conflict. What goes on inside you when you have a disagreement or get into a fight with someone else? Do you get angry? Do you raise your voice or scream at that person? Do you feel hard done by and harbor a grudge against that person? Do you avoid that person as much as you can? Do you, do you feel a desire for misfortune to strike him or her? Do you fantasize about how you might get even? At times, we might not even be mindful of what actually lives in our hearts. We're not always self-aware. We don't always have a good handle on our feelings towards other people. But think of someone in your life you've had a disagreement with. Are you aware of the negativity in your heart toward that person? Of the desires that live within you that cause you to fight? Of the smoldering resentment you hold against that person because of something that's happened in the past? When those kind of feelings live within us, all it takes is a little spark and passion burns hot. Then the hatred and anger are real. The desire is there to make that person pay. In such instances, sin is crouching at the doorway of our hearts. If we don't deal with our thoughts and feelings in a godly way, we'll soon fall into the snare of the devil. 
What does Jesus teach about this? In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. With these words, Jesus teaches us the importance of dealing with the brokenness in our human relationships. He makes it clear that a refusal to love our brother and be reconciled with him can create a barrier between us and God. His teaching is made even more clear in 1 John 4. Here John exhorts us saying, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother also. The Bible makes it clear that in the sixth commandment, God calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. See, beloved, there is this radical difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And John explains that difference in 1 John 2. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John makes it clear that those who hate others have been blinded by Satan, that they are living under his mastery. Beloved, are there people in your life that you strongly dislike? Are there brothers and sisters with whom you have had disagreements that you now avoid? If the roots of murder are present in your heart, if you're struggling with envy, hatred, anger, or a desire of revenge, you need to repent. Through these feelings, Satan has power in your life, power to provoke you, to do terrible things. Confront the issues, work them out as much as that is possible from your side. In 1 John 3, the apostle explains how seriously the Lord takes it when we don't show forth love to our neighbor. John attaches eternal consequences to our love and our hatred. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, beloved, that our thoughts, feelings, words, and deeds indicate if we're abiding in life or death. Sometimes our sense of justice is such that we want others to get what's coming to them. 
But if you live with ill will in your heart toward a family member, a former friend, a brother and sister in Christ, or your neighbors, you are abiding in death. Christ teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It, too, begins in the heart. It begins with seeing people around us as being bearers of the image of Christ. It begins by respecting them and dealing kindly and patiently with them, even if we don't agree with their perspectives or their lifestyles. Within the church, we need to learn to set aside our judgmental attitudes, to accept each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we differ in certain matters. More and more, our old nature needs to be put to death, and we need to put on the new nature. In our lives, we are to show forth the fruit of the Spirit who lives in us. We're called to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy and friendliness toward our neighbor. We are to restore those overtaken by any trespass with a spirit of gentleness. We are to reconcile with those who have sinned against us. Beloved, it's often in these areas where we have difficulties. It's so easy for us to stand on our rights Our pride often gets in the way of approaching a brother or sister with whom our relationship is broken down. We're afraid to be the lesser. Or else it's hurt that prevents us from from restoring a broken relationship. We feel hard done by, and so avoid contact with a person who has wronged us. And beloved, the sixth commandment teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves to live in peace and harmony with him and her. In our first point, we've seen what Christ commands of us in the sixth commandment. In our second point, we'll consider how Christ came to fulfill the sixth commandment. Hearing what Christ requires of us in the sixth commandment could cause our hearts to despair. Who can live up to that kind of standard? Our sinful nature is such that at times we are plagued by envy, hatred, anger, by desire of revenge. At times we act out on our sinful thoughts and feelings. By our gestures or words we attack our neighbor. Indeed, it is impossible for us to live up to the standard Christ has set for us. Beloved, that's okay. We shouldn't despair. Please remember the words we read from Matthew 5. Jesus said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Christ himself has lived up to the high standard that he set for us in the sixth commandment. He never murdered anyone not even in his thoughts or gestures or words. Jesus kept the law perfectly. As our Savior, he had to be 
completely obedient to the law of God. He had to obey perfectly in order to be able to pay for our sins, to redeem us and restore us to righteousness and life. During his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ faced much opposition. The Jewish leaders were envious of him, for they saw that the people listened to him. Again and again, they tried to trap Jesus in his words. They plotted and they schemed. Yet Jesus never lost his temper with them. They turned the hearts of the Jewish people against Jesus. And yet he never became bitter. Christ understood what drove them and how Satan had ensnared them. His heart was filled with compassion, even towards these men who persecuted and oppressed him. Isaiah describes our Lord's patience and gentleness and compassion and mercy toward those who led him to the slaughter. Isaiah said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Even in the time when the Jewish leaders falsely accused Jesus before his judges, our Lord did not repay evil with evil. Quietly, he bore his suffering. In the end, our Lord was condemned to death for something he did not do. He was handed over to a squad of Roman soldiers to be crucified. He suffered a horrendous death, hanging on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth, forsaken by his father and rejected by men. And yet, you know what the Lord Jesus did while he was there hanging on a cross? He prayed for his opponents, for those who had crucified him. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The Gospels make it clear that these are the first words that Christ utters from the cross. After being nailed to the cross and after being lifted up so he hung from it, Jesus' first response is to pray for those who crucified him. It's impossible for us to imagine the pain and agony our Savior was in. Besides the physical pain resulting from his crucifixion, Christ suffered ridicule and abuse from his people. And yet, he prays for them. When someone wrongs us, our instinctive reaction is to want revenge. When someone does a dirty on us, we want to get even. There is a strong sense of justice that lives in us. And Jesus was a man just like us. He would have faced the temptation to get even with those who crucified him. He could have called down fire from heaven to consume his enemies. He could have caused the earth to open up and swallow those who had wronged him. But Christ does the opposite. He prays that the Father would forgive those 
who crucified him. This prayer shows our Savior's love and compassion for his people. Despite the fact that they are guilty of crucifying the King of glory, he desires their redemption. When Christ prays that his murderers may be forgiven, he's asking the Father to withhold judgment against them until they have opportunity to repent and believe. Jesus prays for a reprieve. He prays that his murderers may come to see that they have crucified the Lord of glory, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah whom God has sent to redeem them. He prays that they may repent from their sin, that they may seek their salvation in him alone. To make that possible, Christ suffered the agony and shame of the cross. His love for us was so great, he gave up his life for ours. By dying on the cross, he has freed us from the curse of God that lay on us. By the grace of God, we now share in the atoning sacrifice of our Savior, through faith, Christ's righteousness and his holiness are applied to us. They're granted to us as if we ourselves had accomplished all the obedience Christ has rendered for us. God's grace is on those who repent of their sins, who seek their life in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus teaches us why we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. He says, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's 1 John 4, 10 to 12. Here we see our motivation for loving our family members our brothers and sisters in the church, all our neighbors as ourselves. It's because God first loved us, because he sent his son to die for us. Brings us to our final point, and it will see that Christ calls us to keep the sixth commandment. Out of thankfulness for the wondrous redemption we have in Christ, God calls us to live our lives according to his commandments. John 14, 15, in John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John reiterates this in 1 John 5, verse 3, saying, for this is love for God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. With respect to the sixth commandment, that means more than loving our neighbor. It's actually striking to see how high Jesus sets the standard. The end of Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When the Lord Jesus carried out his ministry, he had to deal with the narrow-minded and the intolerant attitudes of those around him. 
The scribes and Pharisees taught the people to love their neighbor and hate their enemy. They made distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, teaching you had to love your fellow countrymen, but you were allowed to hate the infidels. And Christ came so that the love of God would be able to flow into the hearts of men. His love was meant down to break his, his love was meant to break down all boundaries of race, of nationality, of party, of class, of sex. Therefore, we see that Christ breaks down this artificial distinction between neighbor and enemy. We're not supposed to classify others as enemies. It's a misunderstanding of who our neighbor really is. Christ made this point clear in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was not the priest or the Levite who helped the poor man who was beaten by robbers and left lying half dead at the side of the road. It was a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were despised by the Jews. Yet the Lord Jesus gets the lawyer to admit that it was the merciful Samaritan who was truly a neighbor to the beaten traveler. And then Jesus told him, you go and do likewise. Beloved, we are to show love to all those we come in contact with in our daily lives. It applies to the members of our own family, to our brothers and sisters in the church, to those we meet in the workplace or with whom we do business. We are to show love even to those who have hurt us or wronged us or ripped us off. We are to show love to those who hate us, who curse us and abuse us. This is the standard of perfection to which Christ calls us. Why does God call us to love in this way? Because he wants us to image Christ our Savior. Remember, as Christians, we are Christ's representatives on this earth. What we say and do, how we love or hate, these things give others a perspective on who the Savior Jesus really is. Peter explains this in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It is by doing good, by showing love, that we give unbelievers a clear perspective on our Lord and Savior. If we can show them love, even after they've ridiculed us or belittled us or oppressed us, we give them a snapshot of the transforming love of our Savior. Now, beloved, it's obvious that we cannot love others like this in our own strength. By nature, our impulse is to repay evil with evil. Our heart's natural inclination is to be envious, angry, and hateful. 
toward those who have hurt us. But Jesus Christ has not only paid for our sins with his death on the cross, he's also poured out his spirit upon us to renew us. He's the one who changes us from the inside out so we can show patience, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness even toward those who have wronged us. 1 John 4, verse 7 teaches us that love is of God. God is the source of all love. True love finds its origin in Him. The beautiful thing is, is that God allows us to share in this love. In Romans 5, verse 5, we're taught that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God remakes us in His image so we can reflect Him in how we live our daily lives. By the Spirit's power, it is possible for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's by the power and might of the Spirit that we're able to fulfill the golden rule. Do to others what you would like them to do to you. That's what our Savior calls us to do in the Sixth Commandment. Amen.